0: Hello and welcome back to another week's episode of Husky Talk. Today we will be interviewing four-time Iditarod champion. Please welcome to the show, Dallas Seavey. All right. Hello, Dallas. How are you today?
1: I'm doing all right. Feeling a little bit better. This last few days have been quite under the weather.
0: Before we start our interview with you, we are going to test your Iditarod knowledge. We have five Iditarod trivia questions for you. Ready? Yep. Who was the first female champion for the Iditarod?
1: That would have to be Susan or Libby Riddles.
0: Correct. What is the halfway checkpoint of the Northern Route? Say again. What is the halfway checkpoint for the Northern Route? That's Cripple. Yeah. How many minutes apart do mushers start?
1: Well, that's kind of a trick question, but the answer is two minute intervals. But they do throw a three minute interval in there every once in a while for commercial breaks, at least they used to.
0: Good job. What was used for the very first finish line?
1: Uh, That one, I want to say that it was a container of kool-aid it might have been chalk but it's something i think it was kool-aid or some dyed yeah, it was um, sh- juice mix that they poured across the snow
0: yeah it was kool-aid good job all right who is the fastest finished time
1: fastest finished time um i would claim that there should be an asterisk by it but uh that'd be mitch C V two 2017 eight days three hours and 40 something minutes
0: And then you write. What's that? And then you write.
1: Yep. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I guess my finish time in 2016 is still the fastest on the normal I did raw trail. Um, You know, on 17 we had an alternate route, but that's still the fastest time, and I think that one's going to stay as the fastest time for a long time. That 2017 time. That one's going to be the record for quite a while, I think.
0: Good job on the trivia. You were five out of five. Now on to finding Uh, out a little more about you. First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Come again? First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, Let's see. I'm Yes, I'm a 32-year-old dog musher. <laughs> I've been uh, doing this since I was about five years old. So mushing sled dogs and training sled dogs has pretty well been my life for um, about as long as I can remember. And it's probably going to continue to be my life for about as long as I live.
0: We you know your family has been involved in the Iditarod since the beginning. Can you tell us, tell the listeners how your grandfather, Dan Seavey, was involved with the start of the Iditarod?
1: Sure. So, uh, my grandpa, he... I guess he started mushing when he first moved to Alaska. And, uh, my dad was, I think, about four years old at that time. And, um... Started out with just having a couple of sled dogs to mush around and you know, haul firewood, go hunting with them, um, you know, get water, just generally traveling. And then after he had had sled dogs for about 10 years, um, he helped start the first Iditarod race and competed in that first race. So, um, yeah, I guess he'd kind of just been involved with the, the sport as a whole and was friends with Joe Reddington Sr., who was kind of the father of the editor and on, the one who really spearheaded the whole project.
0: So you were homeschooled as a child. Can you talk to us how you feel this shaped you into the musher you are today?
1: Um, yeah, I got that question. I, I all caught part of it. Um, I was homeschooled all the way through high school, and um, essentially school for me was mostly about uh, helping my dad train his sled dogs and taking care of a kennel of dogs. Um, Yeah, there was actual, like, homework-type school. We actually did uh, a little bit of that, but maybe only an hour, maybe two hours a day. Most of the time was spent, you know, again, working with sled dogs and training dogs. So um, that's kind of how my childhood went, was more like... um, against anybody who grew up on a a farm or a ranch and actively working with the animals there. So um, I felt like when I left home, I uh, maybe didn't have the best, best um, academic education of all time, but I did feel like I had about the best possible mushing education. And that being said, uh, my mom did a pretty good job homeschooling us as well, and a little bit of time it took her.
0: Did you enjoy being homeschooled? Did I enjoy it? Yes.
1: Absolutely. Um, I did because, for me, I was. I think this is why it worked for me: is I have to spend my time learning what I wanted to learn or learning about what I cared about. So, even though I didn't spend as much time doing school, the time that I spent doing it, I was actually really curious and wanting to learn what we were studying, whether it was math or geography or history or anything else. Um, I think because of that, what I learned, we picked up really quickly. So I, I loved it. Um, also, my whole life, I have always enjoyed learning. It's never been, un, um, it's always been a fun thing for me. So I think that's one of the, Things, at least how it worked for me was through homeschool, and this can happen through any avenue. But having good teachers, I think, is all about being excited about learning and having people that can help explain that to you, how, how things work and help um, make learning fun, essentially.
0: In 2012, you became the youngest person to win the rod. Can you talk to us about how you f- felt winning your first Iditarod? Um, it
1: was pretty... Pretty exhilarating. Um, I think there was a few few emotions that I felt that were kind of a, a surprise. One was, there was a little bit, um, uh, what's the right word? I guess a little bit sad almost that the race was over. Um, we had spent so long, me and the dogs, pursuing this goal of becoming an Iditarod champion, um, and when we finally accomplished that goal, it was almost, you know, sad that this quest, if you will, was over, um, you know, many of those dogs were, this was their last rod so it was kind of sad that I wouldn't get to race the rod with them anymore, obviously it was very, very fulfilling, knowing that we had accomplished the goal that we had worked so hard for, um, but the biggest, biggest feeling I guess I had was just a sense of pride. I was so proud of those dogs and what they had accomplished. Um, they had, man, they had all grown so much, and myself too, I guess, you know. And um, to be able to win the Iditarod, we had all gone through a lot and matured a lot and grew a lot, and so I felt a really big sense of pride for those dogs and the team.
0: In twenty fifteen you won your third Iditarod. We watched a video of you of this finish and it appears you don't know you won. Can you talk to us about this unique finish?
1: And I'm sorry, I caught part of that. My my cell phone it doesn't work great here, but you said in twenty fifteen? Yeah. Um and kind of what about the finish in that race?
0: It appears you didn't know you won. Could you tell us about the unique finish?
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that was, um, if I'm remembering correctly, that was actually the 2014 I did a rod finish. Um, and that one was absolutely insane because it, uh, the entire race was um, abnormal, <laughs> let's put it that way. The first part of the race, there was very little snow, which made it super kind of dangerous and difficult trails for the mushers, particularly going over the Alaska range. Um, One of the hardest days of mushing in my life was, you know, going down the Delzell Gorge and through the Farewell Burn in the early part of that race. So right off the bat, we were exhausted. And then the next many days of the race was layer ice and fast. Um, So you know, It's made for a record-breaking pace on the Iditarod, which is always, again, a little bit challenging. Racing a, a race that's a record-breaker because you're kind of, well, in unknown territory, right? You're you're doing it faster than it's ever been done before. And then finally, when we got to the last portion of that race, um, we got hit with some pretty bad storms. So, yes, I did end up winning that race, um, and kind of the reason I thought that I wasn't <laughs> was... When we were about 300 miles from the finish line, I was 10 hours behind the leader of the race. I don't mind being a ways behind because I like having a fast team that can catch up at the end, but 10 hours is a lot. I didn't intend to be that far behind. Um, so at the end of the race, I was hoping for some deep snow or some bad weather or something that would slow down the competitors a little bit and give us the opportunity to, to make up more time. Um and nothing really seemed to come. It kept being good weather and so when we made it all the way to White Mountain I had made up a lot of time. It was only now three hours between me and Jeff King. Allie Zirkle was two hours ahead of me but we only had 70 something miles to go so I wasn't um, I wasn't real optimistic that I was going to catch up with with either of them. So I left White Mountain and was doing that last long run to the finish line and just to make a long story short got a really 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 bad blizzard in there and for the last several hours of that run um you know we weren't really on the trail we were just trying to make it one step farther towards Nome. and hours went by and i knew that i didn't hadn't actually caught up with anybody or passed anybody because i hadn't seen anybody on the trail when I reached Nome, um, I saw that there was a musher catching up from behind me, and I assumed that it was my dad who had left the previous checkpoint, White Mountain, behind me. So I, you know, ran to the finish and got there just in front of that other musher. And when I got to the finish line, I thought I was still in third place, and I thought it was my dad behind me. And then I found out that the two mushers ahead of me had had stopped. Um, one of them had been, you know, rescued by some snow machines. The other one had stopped in a shelter cabin and that I had actually won the race. So that was a pretty, pretty crazy kind of finish to a race. And I guess for me it was a, a, a cool one because it had nothing to do with having better strategy or anything like that. Um, for all intents and purpose, Jeff King and Ali Zirkle had run a faster race than me. And it came down to just, you know what, keep Doing the best thing you can, one step at a time, um, regardless of what place you think you're in. Just do your best all the way to the finish every time. And sometimes that's enough.
0: That is crazy.
1: Yeah, it was.
0: The last couple of years you have done a race in Norway. Can you talk to us about this race?
1: Yeah, so raced in norway last uh 2018 and 19 seasons and that was a really neat a really neat experience um it's a different type of racing almost um I shouldn't say a different type, but still long distance dog sled racing and 99% of it's the same. You have furry sled dogs, they have feet, they have noses, they need to be fed. Um, you're mushing with sleds on snow. So most of it's exactly the same, but there's just some little things that are enough different that it feels like a different sport. Like the snow conditions are generally slower. They've got a lot of wind kind of blown, drifted, soft snow, um, a lot of steep mountains and portions that we were racing in, and um, a lot of it's on the coast, which creates, like, this salty snow, which is kind of strange. Anyway, all that to say, it's a different style of mushing that favors mushers who tend to go a little bit slower and have really steady dogs that don't overwork themselves. And so for me, it was really fun to go over there with my Iditarod dogs, and kind of experience that type of mushing and see a whole other mushing culture. It's like, you know, I grew up following the Iditarod and, and being in that world and then realizing that there's a whole other world of mushing that's, you know, <laughs> over in Norway. So it was really fun for me to see, and I learned a lot over there. Just there's people that do things in an entirely different way, and some things they do are a better way than what we do it. And some things I was able to share with over there that we do it, I think, is a little bit better. Um, So I think after having done that for two years, I am a better dog musher than I was before that, and I'm hoping that, you know, that's going to make me a better Iditarod musher when I start racing Iditarod again.
0: To race in Norway, you have to get your dog sled yourself and supplies over there. What was that like?
1: Um, yeah, getting everything over there was a a massive task. Um, and this is kind of, all right, so this is kind of one of the things that I enjoy about mushing is it's a giant puzzle. What I mean by that is there's always a problem you have to figure out. There's always a challenge you have to figure out. And it's always something weird or different, like how do you move 16 dogs in a sled I know, across the US and then across the Atlantic and then once you get to Norway, we have to move a thousand miles up through Norway and I've got to line everything up with cars and you know trailers to carry the dogs and how to get them in the airplanes and how are we going to move everything and it's a huge task but it's also a fun task to try to figure out so um. It took a lot of communicating with people in Norway to try to, you know, get to use or borrow or buy the things that we'd need once we were there because, obviously, we had to carry minimal amount of stuff to Norway. So my sled, I was able to disassemble that and make it pretty flat but still a really long package. And I was able to take it on the airplane as essentially um, – Well, the airlines have an exception for sporting equipment like kayaks and windsurfing equipment. So I checked it in essentially as a long skinny kayak and (laughs) it made it all the way to Norway like that. Um, The dogs, you can only take four dogs on each airplane. That's the airline's rules. They won't allow more than four. So we had to make several trips carrying just four dogs at a time. And then because it's such a long trip, we can't have the dogs do that whole trip at once. So we had to take a little overnight break in Seattle so that they would have a chance to get out of their, their crates and spend the night romping around in the big uh, fenced-in yard before they had to continue on. Um, so there's a lot of logistics and a lot of you know special vet rules of certain vaccines the dogs have to have and different ways of keeping track of that that we had to do so that they would let the dogs come into Norway. Uh, so it mostly came down to doing a lot of research and being really thorough on everything that we did.
0: Do you think the trip affected the dogs? Uh,
1: that's a good question. Um, I think, how should I say this? I don't think that it negatively affected them. Um, I think everything we do affects us some way or another. Uh, so, yeah, they definitely had an experience but I don't think that it negatively affected them. None of the dogs ever seemed at all uncomfortable. So we moved in two years, we moved you know, the first year, 16 dogs from Alaska to Norway and back again. And then we took them back the next year and then back to Alaska. So there's 64 dogs that we moved across the Atlantic and not a single dog ever had an accident in their crate. Not a single dog ever chewed on anything in their crate. And none of them seemed like, had to have any anxiety or anything like that. We don't give them any medication or anything when they're flying. And I think it's because sled dogs are so used to going somewhere. We're always getting in the truck to go. Sometimes it's just, you know, 30 minutes north to go training. Sometimes it's several hours. We're always going to races. When we get done with the A. the dogs all get in an airplane. And fly home. Um, other races like the Tuskegee 300 out in Bethel, that one's actually going in about a week. Here, you have to fly your dogs out to that race and fly back again. So I think sled dogs, as far as pets go, do more traveling than almost any other dog, and um, they're pretty good at it. So no, I, I think they were they were champion travelers.
0: Wow. Are you planning on racing over Norway th- again this year?
1: This year, I'm taking my main focus is actually on training my two-year-olds, um, the young dogs in the kennel. Actually, they're not the youngest. They're more like they're more like college-age dogs would be the right way to put it. Um, and I really, really miss working with those dogs because when You spend, like I have, the last many years working with three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine-year-old dogs. Those guys are, I mean, I've been very lucky to have some of the best dogs in the world, some of the best teams in the world. And it's fun because they're so good at what they do, but they're already really good at what they do. So it's not as much fun as a teacher that makes sense. When you work with a two-year-old's, this is like a college-age dog, and they kind of become the sled dog they're going to be. And I feel like when you're working with them, you have more ability to help them become better dogs. So it's, it's very rewarding because each week of training with a 2-year-old, you'll see so much change, where with the older dogs, it might take them a year to change that much because they're already so good. They're already mature. They're already developed. Um and the same is kind of true with the yearlings, um, but they're also, eh, it's a little bit different level of sports that they're doing. It's mostly just day trips and things like that. So this year I'm, I'm kind of, trying kind to of get the business side of things running. I'm setting up a new kennel. We're still getting that all fine-tuned. Um, I'm training those young dogs and kind of taking a break from racing at a really high level. And the goal is to, focus on racing in Iditarod in 2021. So not later this winter, but next winter and kind of training for two years for one race, rather than just training for one year for one race, if that makes sense.
0: You just answered our next question. Do you think, right. do you think you will ever go back to the Iditarod and try for that fifth championship?
1: Absolutely. Um, I you know, like to say I'm planning on racing in 2021. Um, that's still a ways out. Here's the most important thing on, on racing at yeah, Diderot. Um, if you want to win, you have to be doing it for the right reasons. And I think this is something that um, gets overlooked sometimes, especially for mushers where we do this every single year and we stop asking ourselves why. It's just assumes that we're going to race next year. And it's it's easy to get in a situation where you're racing because it's habit, because you don't know what else to do, because, um, well, you've got the dogs and you need to, or maybe you have people that think that you should. But if you want to really be successful at it, there's only one good reason, I think, um, to do it, and that is because I can't think of anything else that I want to do, or let me rephrase that, because the Iditarod is the thing I want to do more than anything else. You really have to care. It's not fair for your dogs or the people that it takes to help you or anybody else if you don't really, 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 really want to do it, and you have to really, really care about doing it, and you have to want to do it. Not because you want to win, but because you are excited about training this team of dogs and excited to develop this team to the best of their ability and excited to run the Iditarod with a team of your best friends. That's the right reason. And if you can do that um, and pour all of yourself into that, then you have a chance at winning. If you're racing because you want to win, eh, that's a tough reason to 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 care enough about. Let's put it that way. Um, so for me, when I was thinking about racing this year, what I was actually, the question I asked myself is what do I want to do? And the answer was pretty clear for me that I want to train these two-year-olds. I want to work with these young dogs. (laughs) Um, so then it's not even really, um, a clear choice to try to run competitively. So um, I'm planning on racing next year, but I'll tell you right now, if, if September comes and I'm not really excited about you know, doing the training to race the Iditarod, I'm not going to expect my dogs to be ready to do that same training if I'm not ready to. So um, it starts with doing things for the right reason. And then I think the results we look for – Kind of come in line with that but i'll tell you i I think i'm going to be racing next year because i'm already kind of excited about uh running these young dogs that are two right now they're going to be three next year i'm kind of excited about running them and i did run 2021 so that's that's what i'm planning for
0: that's a very good answer thank you now the next part of our show we call lightning round we have five quick questions for you to answer as quick as you can are you ready
1: I think so. I can hear you now.
0: Iditarod or Norway race?
1: (laughs) Uh, shoot, I heard. Iditarod or?
0: Or the Norway race.
1: Iditarod. It's been my race since I was five years old.
0: Beat your dad or beat your grandpa?
1: Oh, that's an easy one. I'd have to say my dad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mush dogs or be on Ultimate Survivor Alaska?
1: Mush sled dogs.
0: Alaska or Norway?
1: Alaska is always going to be home.
0: Our last one, your favorite song? Ooh.
1: Uh. <laughs> I listen to more audiobooks and podcasts than I do uh, music, but um, I'd have to say The Gambler.
0: We ask all of our guests this last question Who are three people you feel would be great guests on our show?
1: Ooh, um, and I think as it pertains to dog mushers, or?
0: Anyone that has to do anything with the Iditarod. What's that? Anyone that has to do anything with the Iditarod.
1: Oh, okay. Um, Man, there are so many, so many interesting people around the sport, and that's one of the things, again, that I love about it is you get people from all different walks of life. Um here's one I would I would task you with perhaps um, there are a lot of really interesting handlers we all hear about the racers um, of course that are competing in the Iditarod but every kennel not, pretty much every kennel has a number of handlers and people helping them and some of them have some incredible stories of where they came from and how they came into mushing and um, And these are usually people that are never going to race, or not seriously, for many of them, it's just that they love, again, spending the time with the sled dogs. So, one of the things I would ask people is, uh, hey, do you have um, a handler that we could talk to for a podcast? That would be one option. There's not one specifically that I would recommend. Um, Someday I want to write a book of all the different stories of handlers, uh, because they come from so many different parts of life. Um... As far as other people, I would say maybe a trail breaker would be a good one. Um, they have some pretty incredible stories, and those are the snow machines that go in before the race to put in the trail and help kind of mark the trail for us racers to go on. And a lot of times they have to do a lot of work to make remote rivers crossable for us and things like that. They put a lot of effort in Um to make it so that we can run the race and have some pretty serious adventures of their own. Um, and one other, and I know I'm not giving you specific names, but uh, more just broader ideas. Whew. Who would be a good one? You know, one that's uh, got a long history of the sport that I really appreciate their, their interest in the race, but not really from the perspective of, of a racer is Mark Nordman, who is the Iditarod's kind of race marshal. Um, and he's had a long history with the, the race and has you know really spent much of his life working with the Iditarod um, from the perspective of trying to make sure the whole thing goes and can get the mushers out there and get the mushers to know him safely and make sure the race is managed well. Um, and also – He was a dog musher before um, and has done the idea before. So that would be Mark Nordman. So I guess that's the one specific name I'll give you.
0: We just interviewed him this week. Thanks.
1: Awesome. How'd it go?
0: It went really well. Good. Good, good. Great.
1: Well, then I I guess I wasn't too helpful on making new suggestions, was I?
0: You were very helpful. Great ideas. We will look into these.
2: Awesome. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for taking your time out of your day to talk with us. Good luck with all your races in 2020 and have a great day.
1: Awesome. Thank you. You guys have a good one, too.
0: We have a couple reviews we are going to read. The first one is from Yay Pancakes. Such a cool podcast. Five stars. The students who do these interviews are great. They're so sincere and excited about their guests. I found out about this podcast when their teacher was on 10 junk miles. The idea road was one of my favorite things to learn about in school, and 25 years later, I am still a huge fan. Hopefully these folks carry their enthusiasm for the race well into the future. The next review is from former guest Scott Coomer. Great idea. Five stars. This is a really cool project and idea. I hope the kids realize that people who are doing the idea will be searching and finding this podcast for years. Special thanks to our guest Dallas CV for being on our show this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please stop by iTunes and leave us a review. It helps with our ratings. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or people you would like to hear on the show, email us at huskytalk1 at gmail.com. If we hear from you or or you leave a review, we will read it on our show. We would also like to give credit for Hobo Jim for our theme song, the Iditarod Trail song. And now enjoy a clip from Dallas' favorite song, The Gambler.
2: On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness. so i handed him my bottle and he drank down my last swallow. then he bummed a cigarette and asked me for a light and the night got deathly quiet and his face lost all expression said if you're gonna play the game boy you gotta learn to play it right Cause you got to know when the hold it know when the fall love